HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello. Hello. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview extraordinary people in the food industry who share secrets to their successes and insights into overcoming their challenges. Today, I'm talking to two incredible women. One is a James Beard rising star chef about to open one of the most highly anticipated restaurants of the year. Not that that's going to make her nervous. If you want to be one of the first to know about her menu and her philosophy, you've got to stick around. And my second guest is an exceptionally talented cook and author and someone that I know really well because she helped me with mine. But she's just written an exceptional cookbook that will inspire you to take action to improve your community one dish at a time. But first, I'm going to tell you about a very special dinner that I had last week. And I am going to put a warning here, which is that there's a lot of name dropping ahead. But I'm going to tell you anyway. So I went to a restaurant called Le Cuckoo in New York City which itself is a name drop because it's a big award winner. It's beautiful. It's a Steven Starr project with uh, chef Daniel Rose. And I went there with, wait for it, Jacques Pépin, the great French chef, uh, his daughter Claudine and his granddaughter Shori, along with Tinu Lockie, who was his editor at Food & Wine magazine. And why am I telling you this? There was something so special about that night with Jacques Pepin in a restaurant with Chef Daniel Rose, who is an American but has a restaurant called Spring in Paris, and also a, a chef who was dining that night named Frederick Morin, who has a restaurant in Montreal called Joe Beef, one of the great restaurants of the world. So here we were in on Howard Street with a French chef who made his name in America with French technique an American chef who made his name in Paris, and a Montreal chef who reveres Jacques Pepin and says he taught him all the technique he knows and uses all this French technique in his um, blockbuster restaurant. And it made me remember the importance, if I'd forgotten, of French cuisine and how universal and um, truly beloved it was. And then, of course, there was the food. Um, I love cannelle. It's something that my father loved in lobster sauce. Jacques Pepin looked at this menu where there was um, riz de veau and lapin, so um, rabbit and crepinette with chicken. And he just looked up and he said, I love everything. And it was a really, it was a beautiful night. Now my first guest... What's your intersection, Jessica, with French cuisine? Well, let me step back. So my first guest 
is Jeff Descalargy, who you may know when she was chef de cuisine at Manresa. She was at Manresa for six years and four of them as a chef de cuisine. And she won that exalted James Beard Award in 2015 and then did something truly, I think, unheard of. It might be the first time I've ever known someone to win an award, essentially walk off the stage and then walk out of the country or fly (laughs) and begin traveling and say, you know what, it was my time to leave the restaurant. Um, I'm going to do some things for myself. And when I come back, I'm going to be really ready uh, to do something new. And so she's with me today because she's opening Simone in... Uh, in Los Angeles. So your first solo project. So welcome, Jessica. Thank you for having me. So because we were talking about Jacques Pepin, did did any of your travels take you to to France? Yes, I actually was in France uh, for a while on that trip. Um, I've been many times before, but I was in the Rhone Alps, and then I was just north of Provence for a while with a friend of mine who actually lives in Switzerland, but she wanted to take me to the countryside and really get me away from everything. And after that, I went to Paris for almost two weeks by myself. Wow. So. What was the most memorable experience there? And then we'll move on, mm. but I'm so curious. Uh, wow, I don't know. I had some really amazing um, charcuterie from this little old man at a farmer's market. Stuff that I'd never tried before. There was one that had like berries aged in it and it was a wild boar sausage and it was just it was dark and moody and it almost looked like blood sausage but it wasn't and it was fruity and really interesting so I think little things like that trying things that I'd never tasted before even though they were so simple and so French so (laughs) um I think that's sort of the essence of French right Mm -hmm. um simple yeah delicious absolutely so I'm excited to learn about your new restaurant. I know David Kinch's food at Manresa that you cooked so beautifully. How much of an influence did you have on that menu? Um, You know, it ebbed and flowed all the time. When I first um, got promoted, it was a big transition. So at that point, I was very nervous to put food on. You know, it took me some time to kind of find my voice. And there was one dish where I finally felt like I'd gotten my feet under me, and I was really proud of it. And it's a dish I still love to this day, and it's simple, but it was unlike anything that we had really done there together. Um, It was just summer squash that was, like, lightly sautéed, and then some raw squash, a pistachio and lovage, like, crumble over it. And then I made... um, nasturtium vinegar and nasturtium oil and I put those together in the bowl just as a broken vinaigrette so it was bright red with like tons of oil on top and it was really confusing that you were getting this bowl with like squash crawling up the side and then a bunch of oil and like bright red sauce but then we made this sauce of different cultured creams that were seasoned and kind of whipped and aerated and poured that right into the middle of the oil and vinegar And it created, like, this eclipse around it, so it was really beautiful. And then it was, like, this creamy sauce that the acid cut right through and the oil kind of added this richness to it because the squash was very straightforward, and it was really lovely. And that's when I was like, I can do this. I can really think of of things that I'm not taking something I've had before and just changing the flavors, like, to really create something and to have it come from the nasturtiums and the squash that we just had a plethora of at um, Love Apple. So it was really like an organic creation of something. Love Apple being the farm that was associated with Manresa, so you got to shop in the garden. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so is that how you would describe the food that you want to do at Simone, or in what way are you sort of coming out of the, you know, the Kinch school to create your own Yes, in your new restaurant. I mean, I, you know, ran the kitchen at Manresa for four years. So I definitely developed my own voice and my own creative process. But it was for a very specific tasting menu mainly and underneath or under David's, you know, vision. So when you're creating like that, you are creating for yourself, but still kind of within parameters. Um, So the last couple of years, I've really been pushing myself to figure out what I like to eat. And what I like to cook at home and the kinds of things that I order on menus and really defining that because Simone, the biggest goal of it is to build a restaurant I would go to all the time. 
And so what does that mean, some of the dishes you're thinking about? I know you're planning on opening in December, so it's not like you can hand me a menu today. <laughs> and, um, and of course, you, I guess you're going to have to anticipate what would be available in de- December as you answer the question. Mm-hmm. But what do you feel will be the, the hallmark dishes? Um, I'm, well, last winter I was cooking this pumpkin dish a lot, and I know that, that some iteration of it will come out on the menu where I roasted pumpkins, kind of hollowed them out and roasted them face down in butter, and then halfway through flipped them over so the butter browns all over the pan and also on the inside of the pumpkin. And then taking that butter and emulsifying it with extremely reduced tangerine or orange juice, and it creates this, like, viscous sauce that looks like nacho cheese. But it's, like, (laughs) this citrus, like, wondrous thing, and you don't have to add anything to stabilize it or emulsify it. Like, it just becomes this incredible sauce. And then smoking lentils, cooking lentils with a lot of, like, very forward mirepoix and then smoking them and kind of putting the pumpkin and the orange sauce all over it and then there were times where I also put andouille on it and it was really great so things like that where it's you know approachable and familiar in the sense of lentils pumpkin but then the sauce you're just like what is this where did this come from and it has the nuttiness of the brown butter but the vibrancy of the citrus I'm ready. I'm ready to go. So it's it's a it's a big restaurant. It's 75 seats, and um, and then there's the 25 seats at the bar. But mm-hmm. I am most curious about the six seats that I hear are at your station. You're going to be yeah. doing a, a a menu three nights a week. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very special. But what you said that I read was that you're going to break <laughs> all the rules. And I like I need to know. Like I feel so many rules have been broken. Like what is left it's to true. break? What are you going to break? I mean, I want it to um, be really involved, and I'm going to talk to you all night, and I'm not going to say, you know, this is a dish and name three ingredients. I'm going to be like, so, I was at the market, and I saw this, so I made this, and I did this, and now I'm going to show you how I did that, and really kind of be able to, like, give people that sort of experience with the food and the courses, and kind of have it be more interactive on their end, and just not feel, you know, I want them to talk to me and ask me questions, and for it really to be fun. And a big part of that is I want the cooks to see that it's really fun to talk to guests Mm -hmm. and something that I've really fallen in love with in the past few years. You know, when we had the fire at Manresa, I did a lot of private events and I really loved collaborating with people and like getting to talk to them and go out and bring them in the kitchen and, and get to have that kind of experience instead of just being locked away in the kitchen doing what I do and sending food out, you know? So, You're going to lock them in with you. <laughs> yeah. But I also, you know, I'm not going to have, like, a format that's set in stone. In the summertime, I'm guessing, it'll be more courses because there's so much bounty and everything's lighter and fresher. And then in the winter, it might be less, and sometimes it'll be five, and sometimes it'll be 15. But I want it to all be, you know, I don't want to kill you with food. I want people to leave very full and satiated, but not uncomfortable, because that's something that's really important to me. Um, you you yeah. mentioned something that is very important to you, which is the staff to have fun. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, one of the reasons that you left Manresa was you were just an exhausted person. You your mm-hmm. work was your entire um, your entire life, and you sort of lost a bit of a sense of who you were. Can you tell us about the journey to reclaim yourself? Yeah. So, I mean, I had a really hard time transitioning into a chef, and I think it was mostly self-imposed. You know, I all of a sudden went from being a very confident and happy cook to a very insecure and, like, uncertain chef and manager and all those things. And I mean, it's just a lot of pressure to Uh go from, like cooking food on a station, knowing what you had to do every day to people wanting me to answer their questions and solve problems and managing people, I think is the hardest part of everything. Mm -hmm. Learning how to, you know, deal with people's personalities and how not to take on so much stress. So for the first couple of years, I was really, you know, kind of consumed by that and figuring that out. And then I really turned a corner and got much better. But I still knew that after that I was going to need to take a break. So by the time that I left, everything I was actually in a very good space, but I also, you know, it had been six years. It was time to do something else, and I had never been just Jessica in my whole life. I started cooking very young, and that was kind of it. That was everything I was, and I have 
great success from it and I love every minute of it, but I also really wanted to figure out who I was outside of a chef to not introduce myself as Jessica from Manresa every time I met somebody, which is what my life had become. So And so what did just Jessica end up meaning to you? Like what did you was there some discovery that you made in that time, which is sort of two and a half years yeah. from then to now? Um, I mean, I think I made a lot of discoveries. I became much more spontaneous, much more extroverted, really pushed myself to do things that I normally probably would have shied away from or made an excuse not to go to and kind of made this commitment to say yes a lot to, you know, going out, doing things, traveling, going here, you know, just taking on a lot of stuff that I normally would have been like, no, I can't have to work, you know, I found out a lot about myself and what helps me, what calms me down, and what are those things? I mean, being outside, hiking. I knew that, but I never made, like, an effort to really test all these theories about myself. You know, what would it really feel like to not have stress in my life and to sleep better and to, you know... <laughs> you had said you're something of an insomniac. Did you sleep better not working? Yeah, that was so much better. And I became a morning person, which was crazy, (laughs) which I know will probably go away once I start working again to a degree. But I've really that was one incredible thing was falling in love with being awake at 6 a.m. And, you know, getting up, making my coffee every morning for myself as like a ritual and like taking the time to make a perfect Chemex and really spending the time without my phone or anything to enjoy it. And going on a walk for 20 minutes because I didn't have anything better to do, but knowing that that was probably the best thing I could do for myself. So what part of those rituals or those experiences are you determined to hold on to as you launch into what will be a truly exciting and demanding restaurant opening? I mean, it's definitely a big commitment to me to uh, get outside, get sunshine. Vitamin D, I know, is incredibly important to me. You know, the last couple of years, everyone has been like, you're so tan, you're so tan. I'm like, I know, don't let me forget that I need sunshine, Uh that it really helps me stay more balanced and more calm and just aware of myself. Um, So like going on walks or going on a bike ride and, you know, thankfully where I live, just I didn't know this when I moved in there, but I'm close to the restaurant, but I also can go hiking out my front door. I can get in a five mile hike or a 14 mile bike ride within like an hour hour and 20 minutes straight from my house, which is amazing and so difficult to find in LA, like right out, not having to drive anywhere to do that. So knowing that I have those things at my disposal, that if I wake up an hour early, I can go and do something that's just for myself. Yeah. You know, not bring my phone and not stress about all these things right off the get go starting the day, I think will be really important. So I want everyone to go to your new restaurant. I want to go to your new restaurant. <laughs> I so, hope you'll come. <laughs> so um, if you were going to say, you should really finish, finish the sentence for me, you know, like a fill, okay. in, fill in the blank. Like, oh, my God, you really have to come to my re- new restaurant because. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know you were going to do it right then. Um, <laughs> it was right then. Because uh, we're going to have something for everybody. You can decide if you want it to be an elaborate meal or if you want it to just be a drink at the bar, and a simple dish. Okay, and I would have to add to that that you have an exceptionally visual and flavor-oriented brain that takes these simple but compelling ingredients and retains the simplicity while ratcheting up the um, the flavor and um, the I- ideas within the food where you're not tasting the idea, you're just tasting um, the flavor behind it. Yeah. So. Um, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. And we're going to take a quick break. And after that, we'll be talking to Julia Tertian, an extraordinary cookbook author and friend. Be right back. Hey, this is Cynthia, host of Primary Food, here with Anna Bonengel, a registered dietitian with Eat With Zest, eatwithzest.com, and we are here to talk about Bob's Red Mill and superfoods. So, Anna, what is a superfood anyway? One way to think about it is if you think of foods along a spectrum, there are a few foods with fewer nutrients, and then there are foods that are packed rich with nutrients and antioxidants. And so superfoods are those that are on the furthest on the scale in terms of having the most nutrients and antioxidants. Which foods are considered superfoods? 
some are super well-known, like blueberries, kale, salmon. But now people are also going nuts over lesser-known foods like goji berries, acai, flax, and chia seeds. And a really popular one now is black garlic. So if I'm trying to eat better, should I go on a strictly superfood diet? Well, you know, superfoods are, of course, great, and I will say the more you eat, the better. However, eating only superfoods would make you deprived of essential nutrients from nourishing food groups like whole grains. Okay, got it. Well, that's great because our sponsor at HRN, Bob's Red Mill, produces a lot of delicious whole grain products. You know, to be honest, I'm a huge Bob's Red Mill fan. I love a lot of the, the whole grains that they provide, but I particularly love they've come out with a blueberry hazelnut oatmeal cup. That is totally delicious. It's got classic superfoods like blueberries, but also some of the more trendy ones like flax and chia seeds. Um, it's, a, it's a really nice mix of trend and tradition. Bob's Red Mill doesn't chase fads. They just keep working hard to offer as many delicious whole grain and organic food options as possible in an endless commitment to good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and I could not be happier to have my next guest on the show, Julia Tertian. Julia is the person who took my kind of crazy ideas, or maybe not so crazy ideas, for my cookbook, Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, and cooked her heart out making the food delicious, and then um, worked with the chefs and the content to make their tips really readable. I tried, but <laughs> it's such a skill. And she has worked with many cookbooks, but um, she had her own last year called Small Victories, which is a cookbook that I adore because in the same vein that I was trying to make food accessible, that is something that Julia was trying to do too, like get some people cooking. And her latest cookbook is called Feed the Resistance, and that's what we're going to talk about mostly today. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for having me on. This is so fun, Dana. I know it is. Like, <laughs> it's sort of like transferring my kitchen. I always wanted more time with you in my kitchen to, um, to a studio. So I was reading Feed the Resistance, and it occurred to me that in the same way that Small Victories, in Small Victories, you are trying to encourage people to take these make these small acts, learn these small techniques so that they could riff on the variations and really own their own cooking, that you've kind of done the same thing, but with a different um, idea in mind, which is to get people to take action against injustice. And in breaking the book down to things you can cook, actions you can take, small actions, larger actions, I feel really motivated. What was your goal in creating Feed the Resistance? Uh, I'm so happy to hear that. That was such a concise way to describe the book. Um, it's funny listening to Jessica speak about her restaurant, like having something for everyone. That was very much the goal with Feed the Resistance. Like you can take the small action, a big action. Um, so what motivated me was... Um, basically a mix of, um, I would say, some fear and anger <laughs> and those kinds of feelings um, that I felt and I know a lot of people I know felt after the election. And I am, I would say, a pretty solution-oriented, proactive person, and I just needed something to do. And um, I normally turn to the kitchen, which is where I did turn. And then, so I started cooking just at first to comfort myself and my family. Um, and then I started bringing that food to local activists in my area. I started speaking to other people in the food community about what they were doing. And I just, I really feel like food gives us a lot of um, answers and ways out of injustice. And I thought if I could put this together in a cookbook, um, you know, hopefully inspire others to do the same thing. All the proceeds from the book will go to the ACLU. So just by buying the book, you're feeding the resistance. Um, it just seemed like a really proactive thing to do, um, which I'm grateful to have had the opportunity for. So tell me about the cooking that you do for the Citizen Action. Sure, yeah. Citizen Action New York is a it's a New York State-based, um, it's a grassroots organization. There's chapters all over the state. I live in the Hudson Valley, and I live about half an hour from the Kingston branch. Um, and I had been to a few um, events and meetings they had sort of prior to the election. And then after the election, I went in 
just like, tell me what to do. I need something to do. <laughs> um, and I'm very lucky to, um, at this point, have uh, gotten to know Callie, who's the lead organizer of my chapter. Um, and she is an amazing delegator. And uh, I went into this meeting. I was with Grace, my wife, and you know, we were listening to the things they do and ways we as citizens could be involved. Um, and then she went around and asked us what we all do. Um, and I told her, you know, I, I work in food, I write cookbooks. And she was like, great, you'll, you'll, you're going to be the food team. And I was like, okay, so who do I speak to? Who runs that? <laughs> and she was like, no, you're going to run it. This is what you're going to do. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, but I just really did take that and kind of literally, I, I ran with it. Um, and between some other people at that meeting and sending out some emails, I've amassed this email list of people in my area who are local home cooks who do other things. They're not chefs. They're not cookbook authors. You know, they're people, they're teachers, they're nurses, they're whatever. Um, but they want to do something helpful. So I, every week I send out a list of the meetings that our local branches happen as having, and, um, we assign people to, uh, bring food. Um, and that food, it does a number of things It saves citizen action money. It's, you know, it's a grassroots organization, so it's not <laughs> very well funded. So instead of spending, you know, say 60 or $80 on cheap takeout, um, you know, they don't have to spend that. We will provide it. Um, it, I think, really motivates people to attend these meetings. I bet. It you know, would brings people back. Sure. <laughs> um, I think it's a nice, I mean, as you know, it's like sharing food with people. It's a nice way to thank them for what they're doing, to show that they're supported. And um, it's a way to be involved without, you know, I think some people are very much part of the resistance or part of activism. They show, you know, do big, loud things. They show up to marches. They, um you know, do any number of things, but there's, I think, as varied as kind of oppression is, so must be resistance. And there's a lot of things we can do and supporting each other and feeding each other is really a very tangible way to be part of it. There's a beautiful quote in the book, which is, you're going to laugh at this. It's either John Lewis or Rumi. <laughs> there was oh, like, I know what you're talking about. It was about yeah. thunder. I think it was the same paragraph. It was. It's a Rumi <laughs> quote in a paragraph with John Lewis. So that kind of tells you about the book. <laughs> but what was it? It's, um, um, I'm, I don't actually have it in my bag, but it's basically um, uh, thunder isn't what makes um, things grow. It's, it's sort of the, the quieter rain. rain. Yeah. Right. And I feel like with the food, you're... you're the quieter rain. You're feeding people, as you say, motivating them, but also giving people a role is yeah. is important. Yeah, I think the other real key thing for me about it is um, I think all of this is it's a marathon and it's not a sprint. So I think finding whatever way is sustainable for you, um, and for me, that's tapping into what I already do, just adding a bit more kind of meaning and purpose. So if I'm someone who spends all day cooking, writing about it, talking to people about it, sending emails. You know, that's pretty much my day-to-day -day life. Why not just, you know, do that with a little extension? Um, that, for me, makes my resistance sustainable. Um, if I were to just start out of the blue doing things, showing up to things I never would have before, you know, I just knowing myself, I would burn out really quickly, and I think that's true for a lot of people. So, I like one yeah. of the messages in your book is don't overreach. You know, the idea isn't to do, like, one extraordinary yeah. thing, yeah. and then, like, oh, I'm done. Yeah. And it's, uh, as you just said, you know, thinking of something sustainable. Yeah. I was fascinated by the people who contributed to the book. You seem to have rounded up some of the great thinkers, um, talkers, and some cooks as well mm -hmm. uh, to share their their recipes and their wisdom. One thing that that showed again was how democratic food is, and how uh, you know you have food from every culture. Well, not every culture, but from many cultures in the book that supports the entire idea of um, you know supporting diversity. And I'm wondering, how did you collect this extraordinary group of people? Sure, um, I'm so glad you brought it up because it's to me it's what makes the book so great. The book is way bigger than me, which is why it's um, way stronger than anything I could do on my own. And the contributors are this amazing group of people, um, and I really feel like we. Um, you know, the world we live in, the resistance that I feel um, happy to be a part of. It's a really intersectional world, and it was important that the contributors reflect that. Um, you know, that everyone 
tell their stories in their own voice, uh, all those kinds of things to create visibility and representation for lots of people we don't always hear from in food. So let's call out a couple of them because oh, sure, some, yeah. some of them I knew and then some of them yeah. I'd never heard of. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would call all of them out. <laughs> um, off the top of my head, there's a, a very beautiful and moving essay by um, a friend of mine, Shakira Simley, who is based in the Bay Area. Um, she wrote about kind of a number of things, but basically how food can be part of activism and, but it's really a very moving essay on, um, race and food and activism. Um, she is incredible. She's a wonderful writer. Um, there's other essays. There's one by Mickey Halpin that was very inspiring to me and it was based on Mickey has a newsletter. Um, I, I believe it's tiny action and Mickey wrote, a ti- is her is that a tiny letter. Um, you know what? I'm going to look it up and I'll tell you the right <laughs> thing because I don't want to tell you the wrong thing. Um, there's a lot of details roaming around in my head. But Mickey wrote this amazing essay about um, kind of speaking to that sort of sustainability when it comes to resistance and about sort of finding one thing to be a leader on, finding one thing to be a follower on, um, you know, that you don't have to do everything, uh, that kind of thing. And um, Mickey just broke it down perfectly. There's an essay by one of my, I mean, heroes, who is Jordan Lexton, who runs Drive Change, which is the sort of food truck um, social enterprise, uh, hiring uh, formerly incarcerated, mostly young people, giving them culinary training, giving them, you know, a means to tell their own stories, all that kind of stuff. So Jordan talked about recidivism and food and just how food just heals everyone. And then for the recipes, there's amazing. Bryant Terry did a vegan gumbo with mushrooms, which is delicious. And a dark so, roux. Yeah, really dark. Like, it cooks forever. <laughs> um, and um, Preeti Mistry, um, who's also from the Bay Area. Uh, she has um, the, the tikka masala mac and cheese. Mm. Um, it's so delicious. It's so, so good. Um, and it was fun when I was testing recipes for the book. I, you know, everyone, the whole thing came together really fast. I mean, basically in the span of a month. Oh, I my went goodness. from idea to turning. I mean, it was really a whirlwind. And I have to kind of thank my publisher, Chronicle Books, for getting behind my kind of... Um, sort of urgent and wild idea and making it happen. Um, but as, as recipes came in, you know, people had uh, written them beautifully and tested them. And I um, did a lot of retesting just because everything sounded so good. And then I would bring the food to oh, Citizen yes. Action. So it was sort of this full circle thing. And that mac and cheese, Preeti's mac and cheese was like, I got so many emails from people. Like, <laughs> Can I have the recipe? And I was like, wait, just a few months. <laughs> Buy the book. Yeah. Right. Um, I like the way that the book was broken into sections because there's big potluck dishes mm-hmm. and big cell dishes. And um, I think that thinking about food in that way yeah. is so smart. And, and cheap food, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're going to make... You're gonna, if you're going to feed the resistance, you're not using Wagyu beef. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the food is definitely skews towards affordable, healthy. Um, a lot of the recipes are vegetarian and vegan. Not all of them, but many. Um, and it's really about, um, yeah, food that's easy to prepare and um, easy to share, I would say. And, yeah, they're broken into these sections that are really practical and it's, you know, really easy meals for, you know, if you're a busy activist or, you know, however you consider yourself part of the resistance, just easy meals to make for yourself, for your family, and then food to share because a lot of the food that comes in these kinds of conversations, you're, you know, you're having a big group of people. Um, And then food to sort of bring with you, um, kind of, you know, whether you're going to like a march or you're taking your kids to school or whatever it is, um, but just food sort of on the go um, and lots of baked goods. And the, the oat bars, what I wanted to, I was, mm. you know, ready to mm-hmm. get up from reading the book to go. I'm like, I could do this now. That, that, Those are a, great. They're really simple and they're like, they last forever. Like, they're great. Yeah. I was yeah. I'm totally ready. <laughs> so there are, um, there are sections where um, you suggest things you can do in 10 minutes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Everybody has 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, of those suggestions, like what are your favorite suggestions? Sure, yeah, that, yeah, the back of the book, there's a few lists, and that one um, felt important to me to include because even though, you know, as I mentioned, the sort of marathon, not the sprint, this is a, you know, multi generational thing we're talking about, but I think we live in an instant gratification kind of culture that sometimes you feel like, oh, there's so much to do, I can't do anything. So I think breaking down some really practical things, I mean, one was just from an environmental perspective, like, bring an empty water bottle with you to the airport so you're you know you, I know you can't 
bring your water through the security thing, but then you fill it up your whole trip and, you know, it makes a little dent. And so there's things that are that small. There's, you know, calling your local school system, your public school and finding out, um, you know, if their bathrooms are gendered or not. And just, you know, making time to make that phone call every day until you get the answer that, you know. So what is your 10 minutes? I mean, you have the food as your practice, but is there anything else on the list that you recommend that you've taken on? Um, I mean, one new thing I've incorporated um, definitely since this election is I've become a regular. I have a lot of my representatives on speed dial um, and I'll put aside time. I do put aside time to call them, um, both ones that I feel do represent me and I, um, you know, call to sort of thank them and, you know, sort of fuel the resistance in that way. And then representatives who, you know, I disagree with things they're doing and you know, it was sort of, uh, it's kind of obvious, but it sort of was very eye-opening to me when I was like, oh, a representative, they're supposed to represent you. Like, <laughs> let them know. Um, so, but it's a phone call, you know, and it's like those phone calls add up. So taking a few minutes a day, it doesn't have to be an overwhelming thing. So what were the seeds of this in your own life, right? So you didn't just wake up when um, this election happened. No. And, you know, then found your inner anger. Um, is it something... Do you feel like you are a political person? Do you feel like you had the seeds of this when you were young? Um, it's such a good question because I think I had the uh, absolute privilege of not considering myself a political person um, until this election. But I think once it happened, I realized uh, that I actually was. And a lot of the actions I have been taking are political. Um, and so, But I would say the seeds of that... To me, it's about, you know, I think there's a lot of words that kind of put people off, like you're super political or you're an activist or these kinds of things, or, you know, hopefully they don't put people off, but they can be a little bit polarizing. Yeah. I am a community-minded person, and that, to me, is where it all kind of comes from. Um, And that is something I grew up knowing. It was something that was important to my parents. It was important to my grandparents. Um, My grandparents, my maternal grandparents, who I never knew, they ran a bread bakery in Brooklyn, and they always had... um, What's called? It was a Jewish bakery. They had what are called pishka boxes on the counter, which was like a little, um, like a cardboard box where customers could put loose change in, and it would go to local organizations. And it was always the bakery was part of its community. It wasn't just a bakery, um, you know. So I think these are things that are handed down. And yeah, I should say those grandparents were. I mean, they were refugees who fled like religious persecution to be here, and you know, they. It was just as important to them to give back to the community that welcomed them. So, yeah, I think it goes way back. It's you know, way beyond me. <laughs> um, and is it something that, like, your parents encourage? You have such amazing... I have the privilege of knowing Julia's parents. <laughs> um, you know, that it was... I just... I feel like, for some of us, you do wake up one day and feel like, I could have done so much mm-hmm. more, of what, but here it is today. Yeah. Um, like, my in my family... Um, we used to joke that my mother spent uh, my childhood at Bloomingdale's, <laughs> and um, that was because she didn't work, and um, and we had some really good clothes. <laughs> but in fact, um, my mother was incredibly giving of her time and energy to a, a very wide range of um, charitable causes. One of them was um, the Jewish Board of Children's Services, JBFCS. I just mangled the name, but we would inevitably, whenever they called, be screaming in the background and uh, making my mother not appear to be the model <laughs> person to be part of helping children succeed. But in any case, I feel that um, though I didn't recognize it at the time, her charitable impulses had a huge effect on um, the direction that I've taken, which is spending a lot of my time a book, a cookbook that you wrote, um, the Hot Bread Kitchen Cookbook, um, which is someplace I spend some time. You know, I'm really devoted to their mission, which is helping low-income women, uh, training them to bake so that they can have uh, great jobs with great benefits. Yeah. So Hot Bread Kitchen, to me, is one of the best examples of, you know, how food can really be part of of all these things we're talking about. And um, especially because, you know, uh, women sort of graduate the program, not just with these skills, um, but also their contributions are are recognized and celebrated. And um you know, there's no other place I can think of in New York where you can get, like... I mean, you're carrying one of their hollows in your bag. <laughs> but you also have, like, the best corn Pick tortillas that. that Nancy makes. And, you know, it's such a range of, of uh, breads. And, um, yeah, Hopper Kitchen is incredible. So when you were talking to all the activists to encourage their participation for the book, is there 
Was there a through line of, um, you know, their message to you aside from overreach and aside from thank you, I'm sure, um, that you learned a better way to participate in this because they've been doing this for so long and mm. you were somewhat new to it? That's a great question. Um, I mean, yeah, it is such um, an interesting group of people and they all do such different things, some in food and, you know, some not. Um, so I would say... I mean, honestly, I think the through line is just to do something, uh-huh. <laughs> figure out what that is for you, but just to do as opposed to uh, kind of just talking about it. I would say that was probably the biggest thing is um, just figuring out how to be proactive. And now what about your next book? Because um, So you did this one in a month, which is extraordinary. And I think you were in the middle of actually creating yeah. a, a cookbook yeah. when this idea stormed into your mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I definitely, it's so funny hearing um, Jessica talk about um, all these wonderful hiking and waking up and <laughs> taking the time without her phone. And I'm just, I'm like taking notes because I, I mean, I'm definitely a workaholic, but I feel very um, fortunate to work on things that mean as much to me as, as this book. Um, but then, yeah, so Small Victories, you mentioned that came out last year. And then I've started working on, I had started working on another book, which will come out next fall. Um, and then this idea for Feed the Resistance kind of presented itself. So I just ran with that. Um, but yeah, that book's going to be really fun. It's all um, menus and um, yeah, it's organized by menus and meals. And then it's ways to kind of uh, use up the leftovers, which is something that I, I love doing. Um, it's sort of a sneaky kind of fun way of addressing sort of food waste too and all that but um Ooh, more yeah. more resistance and <laughs> i think that the truth is when you feed the resistance there's no leftovers yeah that's true yeah <laughs> so, I, yeah and i think with that book i feel like working on feed the resistance has been the kind of project that has um yeah just definitely fundamentally changed me and how i approach my work and i feel like um yeah my next cookbook is you know sort of uh, regular, kind of mainstream, classic cookbook, but there's definitely a lot of social justice peppered in there. So. Change forever. Well, when I think about um, your background, you've written, um, you've written articles you, and you've uh, co-authored books. How is it to go from being a co-author to being sort of in charge of your own destiny? It does remind me of Jessica. And, yeah. you know, it's sort of, you're working for David Kinch or in your case, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow mm-hmm. or Mari Batali or, <laughs> um, or any of these, any of these people. And then you emerge and then you've double emerged because you emerged with your first book and that, and now you're leading the resistance. So yeah. what, what was that like? Is that part of a personal journey of going from the shadow to the light? Or? Um, I think it's all, yeah, it's so funny. There is such an interesting kind of parallel with um, your conversation with Jessica, but I think um, to me, it's not quite as linear as that. I mean, it definitely is in some ways. I, I've, I've basically been obsessed with cookbooks my whole life. Um, I've been cooking forever. I've, I taught myself how to cook out of cookbooks. Even before I could read, I was just looking at them. I just love them. Um, so, yeah, making my own was something I always dreamed of, but I always have Do you have felt, a favorite cookbook from all um, that time? Definitely, yeah, Edna Lewis's Taste of Country Cooking, always. Yeah, I think it's, it's a great perfect. Book. Yeah, I think it's just perfect. Um, it, it's actually because we... So Jessica um, packed up, you know, when she was going around the country, she kept her bed and her cookbooks. I just... <laughs> cookbooks yeah. can have a lot of meaning. And I mostly have old cookbooks. Yeah. Those are my favorites, are like the classic old cookbooks. Yeah. I have a lot of modern ones too, but the old ones where it's like little bits of wisdom that you can't really find. I totally agree. I mean, I I now live in the Hudson Valley, but I moved um, in New York. I don't know, probably ten times or something. And it was oh I carry those cookbooks yeah. everywhere. Like, and moving in New York is really not. I, know. I mean, moving anywhere is hard, but it's always it's the awful. Books. But I, it's always yeah, the books. I've always held on to my cookbooks, but um, I think I mean. Edna Lewis's book, I think, is my favorite because it is so... No one else could have written it. That's mm-hmm. all her. It's her voice. It's her stories. Um, and so to me, that's been the, kind of the through line to my work. So until I felt like I had enough to say that was particular to me, um, it was wonderful to work with people, <laughs> including you, who had you know their own stories and to be a support to them as they um, you know express their voice and their stories. And then I felt like, oh, I have... You know, I have something to say, so here it is, and uh, it's something I feel really grateful to be able to do. And I also now feel I very much understand what a privilege it is to 
have my voice heard, and I feel very invested in making that privilege available for other people. So I think that's kind of the direction I'm going in, I guess. Well, and also with um, Feed the Resistance, if that is the book that changes your life in a way, um, you know, the way you use your voice will yeah. change. Like the, I love that within Leftovers there's this sneaky little <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. you know, yeah. no-waste message, which is really important it is. Food waste is something that we think of very differently here in yeah. America than most places. And I think that's a brilliant way to bring it onto people's consciousness. And I mean, I love leftovers, <laughs> but there are people who don't. Yeah, but if they can make lot, it into yeah. something else, that's a great exactly. way to get people over that stigma. Yeah. My wife, Grace, you, she, I think... I think this is accurate to say that she would be someone who used to say she hates leftovers, but I love, you know, turning them into something yeah. else. And she's always like, oh, this is the same thing. I had no idea. So I think it's, yeah. you know, it's kind of that experience. That's great. And I think you can kind of, I mean, one thing I've thought a lot about is like what you can, I mean, this is kind of cheesy, but it's like you can achieve a lot more with, what is it, honey instead of vinegar. So I think mm-hmm. presenting these kinds of ideas in a package that is really um, friendly and familiar. Well, I love the idea of, at, at the core, cooking is transformation, mm-hmm. and that's something that resonates with you so much. Yeah. And so how does transformation and personal change and political change resonate with you? Um, yeah, food is such a great metaphor for that. I mean, just the example I used in the book was just, um, you know, you mix together flour and buttermilk and like baking powder and it looks like a mess you know it looks like <laughs> play-doh kind of gone wrong and then you put that into the oven and you know biscuits come out and that's incredible you know so I think being reminded that you can truly just make change happen with food with your own two hands um so yeah change is something that resonates a lot for me and I think the um just being open to I, I really do everything Jessica said really um also resonated with me because I think if you sort of give yourself time to kind of uh, relax and be self-aware and know mm-hmm. what works for you, um, what doesn't work for you. You know, you sort of emerge from that. With, but truly, have you ever yeah. done that? <laughs> Relaxed? Yes. No, I'm allergic to that. <laughs> well, now, now you live up in Hudson Valley. Yeah, no, I You're do. Surrounded um, yeah, by it. no, I do. Yeah. I, yeah, we take our dogs for walks, which to me is That's like huge. the equivalent of your hiking. It's like yeah. that to me is, um, yeah, medicinal, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's the small things. Yeah, yeah, small victories. Small victories. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, the thing is sometimes you come up with a book title and you think that could be your entire life. Like your entire mm-hmm. life could be small victories. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you move 10 people, let's say you move 50,000 people yeah. to feed the resistance mm-hmm. in one way, that mm-hmm. is a yeah. that's a victory. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I, I always felt like with Mastering My Mistakes, if I, you know, that could be my entire life. I make so many so many mistakes in different verticals like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. actually my mistakes in finance or mm-hmm. you know like sometimes it just resonates and I think Small Victories yeah. was such a great title oh, thank you for you for that yeah, reason thank you. Um, well on speaking broadly I always ask the guests to pay it forward mm. and talk about a woman who has inspired you and inspired others and why and so we'll start with you start with me Julia um, okay the first person that came into my mind, um, maybe because we're sitting at Heritage Radio where she used to have a show, is um, actually my friend Nicole Taylor, who's a cookbook author. She wrote the Up South cookbook. Um, Nicole is amazing, and um, she has definitely inspired me to think a lot about, um, yeah, whose voices get heard in food. And what is her um, her focus? I mean, um, she um, uh, was born and raised in Georgia, now lives in Brooklyn. So her book, and I guess very much her life, is about um, kind of understanding her southernness, how that translates to now living here, um, how it translates on the plate, on the page, all those kinds of things. Um, but she, um, yeah, she's very, she's super wise and um, yeah, she's great. Okay. And Jessica? I would have to say my friend Kat Kinsman Mm. is someone who really inspires me. And to speak of small victories, when she asked me to be a part of her talk at Mad Symposium, I told her I would answer any question I would answer honestly. And she was very careful. She was like, are you sure you're putting your, it's like, you're going to be incredibly vulnerable. Are you sure you want to say all this, blah, blah, blah. And I said, if I can help one person, if I had heard this four years ago, someone talking about mental health and balancing your life, who knows what it would have, how it would have resonated with me and how it would have helped me. And I told her if we could help one person, then this is 100% worth it. And 
I have a privilege to have a voice now and I want to use that to help change things and to take care of other human beings. And I thought it was so incredible that she was given this stage, literally, to speak at a food symposium and she made it about people. And that meant the world to me, that she wanted to talk about the people behind the food. And I think that that talk uh, where Kat talked about chefs with issues and exposed a lot of the, um, the underbelly of the food world, the real challenges that chefs have, has brought into the light um, this problem and really has helped um, shape the world going forward. I really believe it was a watershed moment for many different reasons. Absolutely. I don't think it was you know, just that one talk, but it mm-hmm. was, it's like the pin that pricked yeah. this bubble of you know, hiding the poisonous air. Yeah, I mean, Kat was like, I want to make everyone in the room uncomfortable. And I was like, I want to be a part of it. It's great. Let's (laughs) do it. Let's let's take care of each other. Well, what a beautiful way to end. Let's take care of each other. That that is the theme between you two ladies today. Mm -hmm. Um, Julia will help us feed the resistance. You'll help us feed our souls and Mm -hmm. remind people to take a breath, take a walk, talk to your dog. Mm -hmm. You'll talk to your dog too. All the time. (laughs) (laughs) And she talks back. (laughs) um, Thank you both so much for for joining me on Speaking Broadly. I want to thank my uh, engineer today, Vitor. That was fantastic. Thank you all for listening and please join me again next week for another episode of Speaking Broadly. Thank you. Thank you. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.